Brought to you by PrayLatin.com, makers of prayer cards featuring complete English phonetic renderings of Latin pronunciations. What happened to the Jesuit order, the once mighty order of the Jesuits? Today we're going to find out what Malachi Martin had to say about the Jesuits, what happened to them, and their role, if any, in the corruption of the church after Vatican II. Something to keep in mind here is that Malachi Martin loved the traditional Jesuit order. He was a Jesuit priest, and in his work exposing the rot in the Jesuits, he made it abundantly clear that he loved the order itself and its charisms, its saints, and its history. He extols the virtues of St. Ignatius of Loyola, saying of the founder of the Jesuits, quote, Inigo was a rare genius. If Leonardo da Vinci, Inigo's contemporary, had designed a machine right down to its nuts and bolts, the head withstood every test of time and changing circumstances over a period of 425 years, and if only a dismantling of his original design had provoked that machine's collapse, it would not be a greater marvel than the society Inigo designed. For as he built it, the mold of its Jesuitism, its functional structure, its devotion to the papacy, its character and goals, the society has withstood every test of time and circumstance except one the perversion of the rule, role, and spirit he assigned it. Otherwise, its quite extraordinary durability has been proven. End quote. Now, as an aside, it's worth mentioning here that Malachi Martin published his book, The Jesuits, which exposed the rot in the Jesuit order. And after he published it, all the smears you've heard about him came to the fore in what was obviously a smear campaign waged against him. I've got at least one piece of evidence I'll provide in a future video showing that someone close to him warned him about the consequences of publishing this book, and evidence exists exonerating him of all the charges against him as fabrication of Jesuit fantasies, seeking revenge for what he said in that book. You may think the corruption of the Jesuits has to do with heresy, and it absolutely does. They're, they were at the forefront of modernism and worse, but at the heart of the problem is a question of power, and a betrayal of the office of the papacy, and a seeking to take the papacy over to place the papacy under the control of Jesuits. They've accomplished that today, in our time, and I have little reason to think they'll relinquish that control anytime soon. As Father Malachi Martin tells it in his book, the rot in the Jesuit order had set in well in by the 1930s. He would know. He was a seminarian and a, pri and a priest who worked at Vatican II as essentially a glorified, skilled secretary. He was a translator, among other things, a very good one at that and he assisted the notorious arch-heretic Cardinal Bea in various tasks. Bea was the author of the heretical Nostra Aetate, the Vatican II document, that is most directly responsible for the ecumenia we see in the Church today. Without that document, there would be no Pacamama debacle, no Assisi conferences, no talk of separated brethren not needing to convert and just staying as the best Lutherans they can be or whatever, and certainly no deferring to our so-called elder brothers in the faith. All of that was the result of Cardinal Bea's work at the council, and he had Jesuits close to him, as you will see. The rot Malachi Martin describes had set in by the 1930s due to the work of Teilhard de Chardin, Alfred Loisy, and a few other Jesuit priests who had been excommunicated in the preceding decades for being strident modernists. And they had some really wild heretical ideas, and frankly, some of them had diabolical experiences. I've described Chardin's experience with what he called the thing in the past. He had a preternatural experience with a demonic entity and essentially volunteered for demonic possession, if the account he wrote about it is to be believed. I've got a video on that. I'll try to put a link in the comments to it. 
Chardin is a hero among secularists today who seek to undermine the scriptural account of human history. But his teachings, along with those of his mentors and students, proliferated, helping to turn the Jesuit order by the 1930s and 40s into a shadow of its former self. At that time, the Jesuits began waging a quiet war against the papacy. That is basically how Malachi Martin describes it, a war against the papacy to control the papacy. The battle is described today as follows, quote, Certainly at this moment in time, the Society of Jesus is not alone in the war against the papacy. It has been imitated and joined by many groups, Catholic and non-Catholic, religious and secular, each with its own reasons for championing the idea that a new church, the people of God, has replaced the old hierarchic Roman Catholic Church. But it was the Jesuits who blazed that trail. It is they who have set the highest and most consistent examples of this changed attitude about the Roman pontiff and Rome's defined dogmas. And it is they who continue to labor at the farthest reaches of what one can only call divine politics, end quote. And if you need proof of this today, since he wrote those words in the 1980s, you have to only look at the work of Pastor Jimmy Martin of the Jesuit Church and his work undermining the morality of the faith in the name of secular values as the most prominent example in our time. According to Malachi Martin, things came to a head at Vatican II, which is almost described as a usurpation of the church by the Jesuits. Quote, During the time of its great flowering in the first half of the 20th century, Jesuit numbers reached their apogee, about 36,038, of whom at least one-fifth were missionaries. Jesuit influence on papal policy was never before or since greater. Again, this is 1980, so it is now greater than ever before. And Jesuit prestige among Catholics and non-Catholics was never higher. Yet already some inner rot was corroding both Jesuits and the Catholic ecclesial body. Some hidden, hidden problems planted decades before within these bodies had gone neutral, but not benign. Occasional symptoms betrayed its presence, sometimes revolts by Jesuit scholars on an individual basis. Now and again, flagrant abuses in liturgy by individual groups. Rarely but regularly, the confusion between spiritual activity and political advantage. But nothing that happened foretold the violent change that awaited the church, the papacy, and the Jesuits in the 1960s. It is the first time that the Society of Jesus has turned on the papacy, with the clear intention to undo the papacy's prerogatives, to dilute the hierarchic government of the Catholic Church, and to create a novel church structure, and it is the first time that the Society of Jesus, both corporately and in its individual members, has undertaken a socio-political mission. Never, it can be said, did the Society of Jesus as a body veer from that mission until 1965. In that year, the Second Vatican Council ended the last of its four sessions, and Pedro de Arupe y Gondra was elected to be the 27th Father General of the Jesuits. Under Arupe's leadership, and in the heady expectations of the change sparked by the council itself, the new outlook, anti-papal and socio-political in nature, that had been flourishing in a covert fashion for over a century was espoused by the society as a corporate body. For the general mass of Catholics, clerical and lay alike, it was unthinkable that the Jesuits, of all people, would propagate a new idea of the church, or that they would wage war with even one pope let alone three, by denigrating him, deceiving him, disobeying him, waiting for each one to die in turn in the hope that the next pope would leave them with a free hand, end quote. And now they have that free hand. Jesuit fingerprints are all over the radical documents of Vatican II and their implementation after the council. 
The new ideas Martin speaks of here are a leveling of the church, making it more democratic in nature, reducing the hierarchy, first by reducing the power of the papacy and raising the influence of the bishops, and especially the then-new National Bishops' Conferences, which had never existed in the history of the church before, but now they were created in the aftermath of the council, with the intention of giving greater independence to the bishops, and finally by raising the laity up through the creation of a disordered sense of personal conscience, and of course, infusing democracy into the church. The role of Jesuits in leading attempts to destroy the hierarchical nature of the church did not go unnoticed by the pontiffs of the earlier conciliar era. Many have speculated about what happened to Pope John Paul I, with claims that criminal elements took care of the pontiff to uh, get him out of the way, shall we say. Malachi Martin thinks the Jesuits had him taken care of. If you're not aware, John Paul II reigned for barely 33 days before he passed away under very odd circumstances. Circumstantial evidence point to Jesuit involvement in his passing. From the book The Jesuits, quote, John Paul I summoned Arupe and demanded an explanation about an interview he conducted. Arupe humbly promised to look into the whole matter, but John Paul could read the writing on the wall as clearly as any pope. On the basis of Paul VI's critical dossier, and with the help of a very experienced old Jesuit, Father Paola Deza, who had been confessor to Pope Paul VI and now was John Paul I's confessor, the pope composed a hard-hitting speech of warning. He planned to deliver it to the International Assembly of Jesuit Leaders, and Father General Congregations to be held in Rome on September 30, 1978. One of the striking features of his speech was John Paul I's repeated reference to doctrinal deviations on the part of the Jesuits. Let it not happen that the teachings and publications of Jesuits contain anything to cause confusion among the faithful. Doctrinal deviation was for him, John Paul I, the most ominous symptom of Jesuit failure. Veiled beneath the polished veneer of its graceful Romanita, that speech contained a clear threat. The society would return to its proper and assigned role, or the Pope would be forced to take action. What action? From John Paul's memoranda and notes, it's clear that unless a speedy reform of the order proved feasible, he had in mind the effective liquidation of the Society of Jesus, as it is today perhaps to be reconstituted later in a more manageable form. John Paul I had received the petition of many Jesuits, pleading with him to do just that. End quote. In numerous interviews, Father Malachi Martin hinted that he was actually one of the Jesuits who asked for the Jesuit order to be placed, to be closed down and reconstituted at a later time. But that order never came. That speech never delivered, because, coincidentally, John Paul I passed away the day he was day before he was to deliver that address. John Paul II came to the papacy, and the Jesuits were not fans of his either. While JP II was recovering from the attempt on him in 1981, Jesuits in the Roman Curia took full advantage, writing letters congratulating scholars for reviving the study of Teilhard de Chardin, among other errors. Malachi Martin then turns towards the issue of Vatican II itself. Now, he claims the documents of Vatican II did not themselves support the innovations, we saw it for the Council, and to a degree that's correct. You know, if you read Sacrosanctum Concilium, you don't really get um, the Novus Ordo out of that by even a very liberal reading of it. But some of the errors that we saw after the Council are things like girl altar boys, the use of artificial barriers to bringing life into the world, the James Martin sin, communion in the hand, and any others you care to name. Many traditionalist scholars would disagree with him, actually, but 
point here is that the driving force for those changes in Catholic life and Catholic worship were, in many cases, Jesuits, both in America and Europe, and in the Roman Curia. They had previously resisted changes before the council in some places, while the rot festered internally. But after, they became central to it. They got caught up in the euphoria for change. This lengthy excerpt is from the Jesuits, and it is worth your consideration. Quote, Clearly the impulse for change and innovation, the euphoria itself, and the almost infantile persuasion that renewal consists of jettisoning age-old sacred practices and rejecting the authoritative voice of Rome, must have been the result of another process. What was that process? The question is seen in more accurate profile when you look at the effect of the hurricanes of change and euphoria on the Society of Jesus. Jesuits are not ordinary Catholics. They are of exceptional quality among high-caliber minds, and their society is no mere parochial group, but an international organization based in Rome. To cap all those exceptional qualifications, by the 1960s, the Jesuits had what many surely be called a hoary centuries-tested corporate instinct for church, for the papacy, for Catholicism's essential bones for morality and dogma, and they had their magnificent record. When some or all of the bishops and clergy in France, in Belgium, in Germany, in Austria, in Holland, in England, in the United States, decided at various times in the previous four centuries to oppose the teaching of the Roman Pope, the Jesuits never once deserted the Pope. When local governments in vendettas against Rome tried to set up, quote, national churches, as opposed to the church universal governed from Rome, the Jesuits never deflected from their vow of obedience and fidelity to the papacy. No infliction, no threat of prison, of exile, or death, no blandishments of power, of money, of privilege, not even the suppression of their society. For unjust reasons by the Roman Pope himself, nothing, in other words, had ever brought the society to the point of breaking from its vowed submission to and service of the papacy. If even the Jesuits, then, were changed by these hurricanes, and they were, what can account for that? If they were infected with the euphoria, and they were, how did that happen? Hard-nosed telltale facts might have been taken as warnings by men, such as the Jesuits. They were, after all, accustomed to monitoring the horizon for history's red flags of coming danger. How could they have missed the out-of-pattern suddenness with which their own membership and recruitment began to drop. In 1914, there were 17,000 Jesuits worldwide. In 1965, there were 36,038. The continuing pattern should have been growth, especially if there was a general renewal of the kind touted by Jesuits and non-Jesuits alike. Instead, in 1966, that steady growth reversed itself. Membership sank to 35,929. A loss of 109 men in one year was abnormal was in fact the first substantial decline in 54 years. Jesuit superiors, attuned to far more subtle and far more distant troubling signs, should have sat bolt upright and asked, why now? They should have asked themselves the same question with increasing apprehensiveness right through the end of the decade. For in a mere five years, the society suddenly lost over 6,000 men. Why? The pathetic fact is that some of the Jesuit superiors did ask that question, and that they answered it by saying that the society needed to abdicate its vowed relationship with the papacy and to change the very nature of Jesuitism. The society needed the renewal that was reducing the church to visible shambles before their eyes. 
as a Jesuit answer, it was a species of self-destructive insanity. Surely the Jesuits were affected by the general euphoria of the hurricane of that time, for the general characteristic of that euphoria was confident and unquestioning abandonment of what had always been sacred and valuable and considered essential. Any such characteristic had been alien not only to the society of Jesus since its inception, but to the essence, the very reason for the existence of Jesuitism. End quote. The Jesuits had been founded to be loyal to the Pope, but they became the vanguard for revolution against the papacy, against traditional papal authority, until the papacy itself was seized in 2013 by a Jesuit. Prior to Bergoglio's election to the papacy, it had been whispered that Benedict XVI had no control in Rome, that his mail was gone through by priests on a daily basis, by priests associated with that uh, lavender group in the Vatican, that his communications were intercepted and anything incriminating against certain interests simply disappeared before it ever got to him. The Jesuits have been key in the staffing of the Roman Curia for decades, and one has to wonder if it was the Jesuits exercising control over Benedict that influenced his decision to abdicate. But how did we get here? Modernism didn't become the dominant philosophy of the Jesuits overnight. They didn't go from being orthodox to modernist in the 1960s. The rot set in a hundred years before. That's where it began. You know, I've documented on this channel the papal encyclicals of Gregory XVI, Leo XIII, Pius IX, Pius X, on through Pius XII, attempting to deal with this rot in the church overall. There are a whole host of encyclicals on this, and you, they are worth your time. The Jesuit hierarchy tried to combat it, but only succeeded in driving modernism underground in their ranks. By the 1960s, modernism had taken over the Jesuits, and the revolution was cemented in the years after the Council. A lot of this was due to Teilhard de Chardin and his influence decades earlier. According to Malachi Martin, quote, In fact, if you explain satisfactorily why the Jesuits, the Society of Jesus as a corporate body, went the way they did, you will have gone a long way to finding some answers for those questions provoked by the apparent suddenness of change and the wild-eyed euphoria throughout the Roman Catholic Church from 1965 onward. Between 1965 and 1975, the order held two general congregations, General Congregation 31 and 32. By the end of 32, in March 1975, the society officially and at the hands of its highest-ranking superior, the General Congregation, had undergone a complete transformation from the classical Ignatian ideal to a new Jesuitism. By the end of the decade, the society in its new form was in full-tilt opposition to the occupant of St. Peter's throne, after having run a severe gauntlet with that pope's two predecessors. Virtual war between papacy and Jesuits had been declared. One cannot rationally suppose that the delegates to General Chapter 31 and General Chapter 32 just suddenly, without warning, underwent a sea change of such a complete kind, and about two such fundamental issues as the nature of the Catholic Church and the meaning of salvation. Nor can one rationally suppose that a 400-year tradition was laid aside either painlessly or spontaneously. No, that transformation must have been a long time in the making. Over 100 years before the 1960s, in point of fact, a new and revolutionary current had entered the arteries of the Roman Catholic body, affecting particularly the intelligentsia of the Society of Jesus. That current was characterized by a wish to have freedom from control freedom to experiment, to adapt to modernity, to exit the Roman Catholic exclusiveness and join the greater mass of men and women. In a word, liberation. 
Although that revolutionary current took many twists and turns, it had been quickly recognized by the popes of the 19th for what it was, a direct stab at the living heart of Roman Catholicism. Popes denounced it. The society officially condemned it, even fought against it. But all efforts to get rid of that danger succeeded only in driving it underground. The current was still flowing silently and in covert at the beginning of the 20th century. It reared its head openly for a moment in the immediate post-World War II years, but that authoritarian figure of Pius XII again drove it back. As early as 1946, he denounced it in an encyclical letter. In spite of that, the current enjoyed some exposure to public light at, at, at GC 29 in 1946 and GC 30 in 1957, but it retired almost immediately into covert position. The timing was off, apparently. But by then, it was already a question of just that, timing. The originators of that current of liberation, one prominent Jesuit in a fit of prophetic zeal once called them the liberators, had done their work well. From beyond their obscure tombs, they will reach for victory, that same Jesuit remarked about them. Indeed, Pedro Arupe and his generation of Jesuits, leaders in Catholicism all who joyously plunged into the new Jesuitism of the 60s and 70s, were made possible by those liberators who had come before. End quote. That's a familiar term, isn't it? Liberation. Jesuits had often been at the forefront of liberation theology, especially after the Council. We see it today, with a repackaged liberation theology being pushed now by the incoming prefect of the dicastery for the doctrine of the faith. Liberation in the worldly sense, the progressive sense, is driving the Jesuits today. Not liberation from sin, but liberation from unjust structures in society. We'll close this with a final quote from Malachi Martin. The Jesuits have helped craft a new church, what I often call the ape of the church. That false church appeared in the 1960s partially due to Jesuits pushing beyond what even Paul VI wanted. According to Malachi Martin, quote, The blame for opening to such deterioration must perhaps be laid primarily at the door of those close to John XXIII, who persuaded him that, quote, men today spontaneously reject such false doctrines. At least one of those advisors, Paul VI, lived to see the apostolic strength of his church sapped by those who were spontaneous in their adoption of such false doctrine. For such men, the liberation theologians above all, among the modernists of Paul VI's day and our own, the church, the real church, the people of God, is not merely in the world, it is the world. This church's viewpoint is not vertical, looking toward eternity. Instead, its viewpoint is horizontal, out across the face of man's earth. This church does not exist for herself or for an otherworldly goal. She exists to serve the world on its own material and materialistic terms. She must not have a so-called Catholic institution, only human ones. She must be dominated and directed not by Christ's vicar, the Pope, with his bishops, but by the quote-unquote community, which must nominate and choose its own quote ministers of the word. Indeed, priests consecrated in the old manner are no longer needed to celebrate the Eucharist, for example, or to forgive sins or to decide what is morally permissible in peace and in war, in business and in matters of the flesh. All members of the church, men and women of the community, will be the true priests. No longer are bishops needed to govern dioceses or popes to lay down the law for the church universal. The community consensus decides all of that. End quote. 
all aspects of Jesuit theology changed. Even their eschatology, which rejects the spiritual battle view of human history and the traditional narrative of salvation history for a new narrative of liberation in the secular sense. It was a series of general chapter meetings of the Jesuits in the 30s through the 1970s that these changes were enthroned. And at Vatican II, and after that, the Jesuits inflicted this on the church broadly, culminating, I would argue, with the rise of Francis, the first Jesuit pope, who has brought their vision of a new church and their new religion into the Catholic Church, leading to the absolute doctrinal chaos we experience today. That book, The Jesuits, is a must-read for any Catholic trying to understand the crisis in the church, and its publication was immediately followed by a smear campaign against Malachi Martin that was clearly orchestrated by Jesuits themselves. Now, this campaign fooled a lot of otherwise well-meaning Catholics into believing lies about Malachi Martin. I guarantee you when I tweet this video out, I will get responses from some people, and you'll probably see them in the comments here, claiming that Malachi Martin was this or that bad thing. Perhaps in my next video about Father Martin, I will go over the evidence that should exonerate him, or at least make it clear that the accusations against him are paper thin. Even the question of his burial, which I can tell you with certainty that the manner of his burial was not of his choosing, but was done by others against his wishes. And since he was no longer among the living, he wasn't in a position to, to stop them. Now let me know if you want that, I just need a bit more evidence to proceed. But what do you think about this? There's a lot more to what he said about the Jesuits, and that's why he wrote a whole book on the matter though he rarely brought them up in interviews. In one interview, he said the book could have easily been called The Religious Orders, since the same rotten fervor for change pretty much infected all the major religious orders in the church. I mean, we see that in our time. There are very, very progressive Benedictines now, which is just strange to think about. And he demonstrated that in Windswept House, if you recall the subplot involving Dominicans in that novel. But I'm curious what you think about this, so let me know in the comments, please. And like and subscribe if you haven't. It certainly does help, as does sharing this on social media. That helps a lot, too. And as always, pray for the church. I'm Anthony Stein. Ave Maria.